Hi, everyone, and welcome to ABCs of Anesthesia on the podcast and YouTube. Um, so we're going to be talking about volatiles. And again, we want to get you really, really important information, practical information. They can just listen to you on, on your drive to work, uh, especially in your first rotation of anesthesia. So we're going to cover volatiles, what to use, how to decide what to use, nitrous, pentrane, seofluorine, des, isofluorine, um, and then a few different situations like gas inductions, breakthrough pain from regional anesthesia, um, and some of the environmental stuff and risks as well. So let's get started. Hey, I'm Kaz. And usual disclaimer for this, this is all just general information. Please don't use this for any particular patient. Consult your team, consult your supervisor, and make sure you're considering each patient's circumstance um, in, its own, in its own context. So Kaz, what volatiles can we use and what can we, what can we talk about today? So there's a, there's a number of volatiles that are available commercially. In Australia, the most common ones that we would use are sevoflurane, desflurane, and nitrous oxide. Other agents you might hear about are isoflurane and, and pentrane or methoxyflurane, which is used predominantly for analgesic purposes now. Excellent. And so we, you know, we don't want to go through all the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, but there's a couple of important things. So what do you reckon the, the essential pharmacokinetic things are that every you know, junior needs to know about? Look, the, the main things you need to know are the, is the blood gas partition coefficient. So this is a measure of the solubility of the agent. And again, there's a bit of the complex pharmacokinetics, but this essentially affects um, how quickly the drug um, has its own sort of effect. So the blood gas partition coefficient and then the MAC value, um, which is a measure of its potency, essentially, which is more of a pharmacodynamic. Um, and you, you've just done your first part, so you know so much of this information, but essentially low solubility so low blood gas partition coefficient equals fast onset and fast offset which is not that intuitive but we, we won't go through all the details of that but that's all you got to remember low is fast onset fast offset which is generally thought to be pretty ideal okay Cass, so i want you to rank the agents what's fastest what's slowest so in terms of fastest slowest we have desflurane followed by nitrous sevoflurane and then isoflurane fantastic and then the other important thing is, I guess, metabolites, but this rarely comes into effect because essentially, you know, they're all very minimally metabolized, like anywhere from 0.2 to 2 to 5% with sevoflurane and 0.02 for desflurane. Mm. And then the worst one is like halothane, which is 20% metabolized and that can cause hepatic failure in rare instances. But again, that's not something we use at all in Australia anymore, uh, at least in human medicine. Exactly. So that, imagine that. That's all the pharmacokinetics, which, which we think is relevant to your day-to-day -day practice. Now, we were going through pharmacodynamics, and really, that's just your MAC, your minimum alveolar concentration, and some greenhouse gas stuff. I mean, all of them are hypnotic. Some of them have analgesic properties, but really, the and, and they often drop your blood pressure and drop your contractility, and you really got to watch those things and maybe your, maybe your ICP stuff, but these aren't day-to-day -day important stuff. So what do you reckon? What's, uh, what are the MAC values? And then we can talk about greenhouse gas effects. Yeah. So um, I guess to kind of re recap um, some salient points. So the mean alveolar concentration is the, sorry, the minimum alveolar concentration is the minimum concentration required to prevent um, the, a movement to a surgical stimulus in um, and 50% of patients. So this is, and it's really interesting because they were so specific with that definition. Of, yeah. You know what? A standard surgical incision on the forearm, reflex movement, not just voluntary movement. So the patient's asleep anyway. And the age range was like you know, 30 to 50 years old, or, you know, essentially a mean of 40 years of age. Hmm. 
and, and it's a and it's a really new concept, isn't it? So, um, you know, Iga uh, was kind of the pioneer of the concept of Mac, and he only really did it in the in the forties or thirties. Um, so, compared to a lot of other things in medicine, it's it's a relatively new concept, and I think it really revolutionized how we use it. Um, and unfortunately, he he died a few years ago. Um, he was oh, really yeah, really impressive, impressive gentleman. <laughs> so, look in terms of the the Mac values. Um, so, I, I like to think of these as you know the 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 ways we predominantly use them. So um, isoflurane has the lowest MAC at 1.17, followed by sevoflurane, which is 1.8. Desflurane is 6.6 and nitrous oxide is 104%. So these are all in percent. So I guess the salient things here is nitrous oxide is 104%. That means you need more than 100% to reduce movement to a surgical stimulus in 50% of patients. So that, the, the key point there being it can't be used as a, as a solitary anesthetic agent. Mm. Unless the patient's really old, so elderly patients, because what is it? The there's a six percent per decade reduction of max. So you know, if you're an eighty year old, your max is point you know seventy percent roughly of you know a person at forty years of age. So I thought that was pretty. I thought that that's was a really good point. Yeah. So yeah, uh, there, there are definitely times, and we go go into this because you don't want to be using nitrous too much because it's greenhouse gas effects, and we really need to be you know, so mindful of that, especially uh, in this day and age. Mm. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you'll give nitrous to an elderly patient and they'll be out. <laughs> and you're like, well, I didn't realize nitrous was that effective. This is just laughing gas. Yeah. People used to just use it for entertainment and it's just knocked out my patient. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so that was interesting. So your values, so, you know, SIVO is 1.8. On, on my machine, I've dialed up to 2.1% end tidal volatile concentration and I swear it says one Mac and that's what I've been using this whole time. So I've been completely humbled in this discussion because for so long I've been using the 2.1 as my one Mac value yet, you know, one of the, one of the textbooks that we really you know, use a lot in, uh, and it's the Peckula and Williams pharmacology for anesthesia and intensive care. They, they, this is where I go for most of my information. They've said 1.8 as well. So I'm gonna have to change my values. This is, this is, <laughs> this is devastating. <laughs> It was an interesting conversation because it's one of those points where I kind of stopped and went, oh, have I, have I just been saying the wrong number for the entirety of my exam? But we also checked in Miller's, which, um, you know, is, is the, <laughs> at least for the part one, is what, what you kind of, is the argument breaker in your study group. Whenever you have a, have a discussion that you can't agree on a value, you go to Miller's and you just assume that's what the, the college accepts as fact. Um, yeah, so I actually think it'd be pretty interesting if anyone knows why the anesthetic machines say 2.1. Um, and can let us know. I think that'd be really interesting to find out. Um, yeah, let us know. Anesthesiapodcast at gmail.com. Let us know. Um, so that's, so practically speaking, we dial up the sevoflurane or the volatile that you're using and then your end tidal volatile concentration, not your inspire, but your end tidal is roughly what's going to be at your brain at, at steady state at equilibrium. Mm. So your end tidal volatile should be around, you know, one Mac or two, you know, let's say 1.8% SIBO or 6.6% DARES or whatever it is. And that way, you know that your patient's rough, you're going to be unaware, but also not moving uh, to stimulus. Now, there's a lot of movement in this. Like sometimes you don't want to use that much MAC in sick patients. Sometimes if the patient's paralyzed, you don't need to use that much MAC as well because, you know, they're not going to be aware at above 0.7 of MAC. Mm. Um, but we're not going to go through too much of that in detail. Practically speaking, get to that one MAC value, turn up the end title to make sure it's roughly a MAC, you know, roughly approximately 2% in SIVO or 6.6 in DES, and your patient will be okay, providing that you're supporting the other things. So uh, let's let's deconstruct that a little bit, because mm. I, I remember being a resident and being very confused about this. So mm. 
when you say dial up to 1.0 Mac, mm. what do you mean? Because I just told you that the Mac of Siva was 1.8. Can you reconcile those numbers for people <laughs> who might not know the difference? Oh yeah. So when you get, you'll get two values that are important, the end title volatile, that's the percent that's going to be in your body at your brain. And then you've got a calculation, which the, the computer in the uh, anesthetic machine then tells you what the Mac is. So that'll be, you know, any, anywhere from you know, zero to one, 1 1.2 Mac. So when I do the anesthetic, I dial up the concentration of CO. So I might start with an inspired concentration of 4% with flows of, you know, two liters or, or something after induction, two liters per minute. And then that will slowly build up in the body. So my end tidal will slowly build up to, you know, the 1.8 value or the 2% value, depending on what you're using. Mm. Uh, and then the computer calculates that 1.8% end tidal volatile as one Mac. Yeah, good. L that, that, that still, um, I think, confuses a lot of juniors. So, you know, you, you breathe in the volatile, it goes into mm. the body <laughs> and then you breathe it out. So your end tidal is the measure of how much, it's, it's you know, how much volatile is in your tidal breath. So, it's how much is being breathed out. So it's a measure of uptake. So your end tidal, as, as Lahiri said, we use as a surrogate measure for how much is um, in the effect side or the, or the brain. Um, and the closer those numbers get together, the closer you are to equilibrium. And, and the MAC value. So, you know, we also, o, often say we run a patient at 0.8 MAC. That has a corresponding end tidal volatile value. Um, so there's a while the definition of one Mac is a percentage of a volatile, the Mac itself becomes a unit, then we can then titrate, which has a corresponding entitled value. Yeah. That, I think that's really, does well that make explained. sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. well explained. Um, so that's Mac and you'll get very familiar with it literally in your first few days. It'll be easy. Hmm. How about the greenhouse effects? Because this is not something I thought about when I started anesthetic training ages ago, but you know, the awareness of this and trying to actually make a difference. Now we've got a real fantastic champion of this in our, in our department, Forbes McGain. Uh, he's just done so much great work in this. And he knows so much about this and he really changed the way I practice because I, I don't use desflurane at all. Um, and, and one of the things he mentioned was, you know, using desflurane at one Mac at one liter per minute is like driving a Hummer, you know, one of those big, you know, military style cars very energy inefficient it's like driving that car at 200 kilometers per hour and when i think about that i think oh, oh my god but that's that's a terrible use of an agent especially if there's far better agents to use or i don't really need to use des for a fast onset offset mm. exactly so you know vol volatiles kind of have a have a are well known for being um environmentally unfriendly but they but they do have their roles and i think it's kind of the awareness and careful use of the drug. So I, I think, I, I don't think it's as simple as to advocate for complete emission of volatiles. It's actually very complicated because, you know, when you use Tiva, you use a lot more plastic and a lot more tubing and you use, you know, electricity for the pumps and all these things actually add up to be quite significant. So the, the conversation isn't as simple as we once thought it was, but if we think about just the volatiles, so, um, you know, we were talking about this earlier. So there's, there's two main things we need to think about. There's global warming potential. So this is how much global warming um, an agent causes in comparison to a similar mass of CO2. And this is really to do with the reflection of the infrared radiation from the earth. Um, and then there's ozone depletion. So this is essentially um, how much damage can be caused to the ozone layer compared to a similar mass of trichlorofluoromethane, which is CFC, which is in all those spray cans. That's so good. Like I, I actually had no idea of this. I'm so glad you, you, you were t t you know, teaching me this. 
that there's these, you know, and it is so complicated, you know, the environmental impact of stuff is so complex, but it's really great to actually know those two things, global warming potential, was it? And yeah. ozone depletion. Excellent. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, the, and the two main culprits are DES and nitrous, and they actually affect these differently. So DES fluorine is, you know, the main global warming potential agent. It's, it's 2,540 grams of per gram of CO2. So it's 2,000, mm. two and a half thousand. And it's 20 times compared to SIBO, exactly. Um, but in terms of ozone depletion, um, nitrous oxide is um, the, the main culprit. Um, and, and this is why I think a conversation about nitrous oxide in theater and also out of theater is, is again, really important about, about these effects. Um, and, and I guess, you know, to a lesser degree, there's, there's local environmental effects. So risk of risk to theater staff, um, teratogenicity, genicity um, of both nitrous and SIVO um, in a first trimester um, is also a risk as well. But um, I'm not entirely sure how proven that is, but I think that's also a consideration. And, and so that, that is interesting. So again, there's a very big conversation about what you're going to use, but if you, let's say you decide that you need a volatile, then you can definitely decide on a better one than the worst one. So, you know, SIVO, if you really, really don't need to, a, a fast wake up or, or the wake up is not, you know, clinically that significantly faster, like it's a minute or two, what really, is that gonna make a material difference at all? No, in fact, then you SIVO. But if you, you know, you're thinking about whether you wanna run you know, propofol for the whole case or volatile, that's another conversation. It actually gets very complicated when you do the um, carbon analysis on that. Okay, so the other pharmacodynamic things are very relevant. Most of anesthetic agents will decrease your blood pressure, decrease your contractility, and you'll need to support that in every way possible. Uh, often you'll be running a bit of amine or giving bolus doses of that. Maybe you, in you know more sicker hearts, you'll be giving ephedrine to promote contractility. Um, those are those are pretty much those things. Oh, and the final thing, it inhibits palm, hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction which can be a problem if you're having one lung anesthesia. So you might want to run propofol instead of volatiles for that reason as well. Mm, yeah, that, that's, a, that's again another interesting conversation which um, Stan loves talking about. So I think, I think this actual reference in Miller's was only on rats. There's actually no human studies confirming changes in pulmonary vascular resistance. Fantastic. But it's still wants... something that you do practically. <laughs> so what did you say about that? If anyone wants to do that project, do that research, please contact Stan. <laughs> good phd <laughs> that's good um i guess the other relevant pharmacodynamic effect is um mm. the airway uh irritants irrit irritant nature of desflurane oh, absolutely yeah so you know um so desflurane is is a the irritant um it's an airway irritant so it can cause bronchospasm and breath holding particularly in pediatrics um so i guess the main thing really is that it's not um suitable as a solitary gas induction agent um and, and you can get yourself into lots of trouble if you do but I haven't really seen it when you've been used in kind of normal concentrations for a case, but I think in an asthmatic, um, you'd be, you know, you'd be really brave to, to test your luck with whether that, that could happen. Yes. I mean, I, I completely agree. Desflurane is not really for gas inductions and for LMA anesthetics. You, you, generally speaking, you're not using it for LMA anesthetics. So that's the practical side of things. Most people are doing gas inductions with sevoflurane. And then LMA anesthetics are almost universally sevoflurane in, in this context. In other countries, maybe isoflurane. Okay, shall we go through some clinical scenarios? That's, that's what you guys are here for. Good. So in terms of common scenarios, so let, let's, let's go back to your first day as a resident. Um, you know, you're, you're doing your first ever case. So the most common thing we do is we do a IV induction um, with propofol and then we wash in sevoflurane. So do you want to kind of talk us through your process and how maybe 
someone who's new to anesthesia can conceptualize what we actually do there. Yeah, and it is quite peculiar. Why are we using propofol for the induction and then running volatile? And that's a really good question. So essentially, propofol is very quick. You go through the excitatory stages very quickly. So it's a very quick, safe induction. Um, and then you know you can treat the blood pressure as normal. So you get the patient off into anesthesia at adequate hypnosis quickly with propofol, but then you want to keep them keep them anesthetized, keep them sedated for the rest of the case. And you got a couple of options. You can keep running the propofol or you can give volatile. Now there's definitely advantages to both. Uh, and we've gone through that in the hypnotics, uh, the IV induction agent section, but profile, you know, great for various things, but it's great for, you know, pure NV maybe has a benefit with cancer patients, but you can't measure the concentration that's in the effect site. So you don't know what's actually the concentration. You've got some modeling, you've got some fancy machines and your SIN drivers and pumps that can tell you maybe what the mics per mil is, but you're not really sure. Um, because you can't repeat it sample, but volatiles are amazing. They go into the lungs, they come, they go, you know, they go to the tissues, they go to the effects site with it, which is the brain, and then the patient breathes it out. That, and after breathing it out, your machine will then calculate the concentration, and this is fantastic, right? So now you can know exactly what uh, the concentration is at the effect site. That means that you know your patient is asleep. You're measuring that. And there's very good evidence um, that, you know, above 0.7 of a Mac, there has been no case reports of awareness in patients. Um, whereas let's say your propofol is running in your drip, uh, in your vein, it could tissue. Uh, maybe you, you, maybe the arms are tucked in. Maybe you're not seeing where it's going. There is a, you know, theoretically slightly higher risk of awareness in those patients. So you might want to put a bispectral index monitor on uh, more readily for propofol cases. Exactly. I think that's basically it. I, you know, it's easy to measure. It's titratable. It's very titratable. It's very predictable and very familiar to use. Most people do induction with propofol and then volatile for maintenance. Hmm. I think that um, concept of predictability and reliability is really important. So there, there's a lot less um, pharmacodynamic heterogeneity in the use of sevoflurane than propofol. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think everyone has a story of like a little, you know, 40 kilo adult who just chews through hundreds and hundreds of milligrams of propofol just for an induction. Mm. Um, and, and it's really quite difficult to predict um, in, in a lot of cases how much um, propofol someone will need if you're running a total intravenous anesthetic or even or even really for an induction. So um, sevoflurane, on the other hand, has much less heterogeneity um, and is a lot, a lot more reliable. So I, I, I generally, as a, as, a, as a relative junior registrar, I generally run SIVO after hours for emergencies all the time just because it's so predictable. It's easy for me to manage because there's a lot going on. Um, and, and I think that that's definitely one of the pros of using fluorine. Yeah. One less, or, or volatile, sorry. one less thing to really think about, isn't it? Exactly. So, so let, let's, let's, um, let's get in the trenches, Lahiru. So, you know, you're doing a, let's say a, uh, we always do lab collies, but you know, it's such a straightforward operation, I guess. Uh-huh. So, you know, you have a 40 year old, um, gentleman, um, who's getting a lab collie done, otherwise fit and healthy weighs 70 kilograms, you know, the quintessential perfect, uh, patient. <laughs> um, Walk us through what you do. So, you know, we've given out 200 of propofol. Um, they're now asleep. So what do you, what do you do now while the, while the, um, the registrar is doing the airway oh, in terms of washing and the SIVO? Like, what do you dial it up to? What flows do you oh, use? Yeah, How do you right. determine that? When do you turn it back down? Usually I'm pre-oxygenating with say 10 liters of oxygen. Um, and then as soon as they start bag masking, I'll probably turn the flows down to around, you know, six liters per minute, maybe four liters per minute turn the SIVO up, if it's, again, it's well patient, turn it up to say four to 
5%, something like that, that washes the gas in pretty quickly, gets the- So, so you're staying at the 10 liters. Um, oh, no, no, no. Put the flows down to six, yeah. roughly. Uh, and then, uh, then you know, turn this fluorine up to say four, four or 5%. Once the tube's in and secured, I will, if I don't have end tidal target concentration kind of systems, I'll literally just keep it on 4% and dial it down to one to two liters per minute, depending on what the situation is. And that what keeps, you know, keeps the level kind of climbing. So I, I will develop, you know, one Mac in the patient. At once, once I've got to one Mac, then roughly for, you know, say a one hour case, I generally run, you know, one to two liters per minute and have the sevofluorine anywhere from kind of three to 3.5% into, you know, into the patient. And that would roughly mean an entitled volatile concentration of, you know, 2%. Now, what that means is uh, you will be able to, you know, you titrate this as required. So, you know, don't take all of this absolute gold standard. Each patient might be slightly different. So you can just, you know, just, just change that as required. Now there's for a well patient, sick patients, I change everything, but we, you know, we don't have to go through that at this point, but everything is just less and slower because your blood pressure drops, cardiovascular compromise will be a lot more. Excellent. And uh, can you explain what you mean by entitled control just very briefly? Yeah, great question. So now our machines have these fancy kind of algorithms where you can dial what you want the entitle to be instead of what you want the inspired to be. So now I can just put, oh, well, it's the start of the case. Nothing much is happening. Entitle concentration of 0.7 MAC is enough or in SIVA, maybe, you know, one to 1.5% is what I want. And then as the case progresses and they start doing the surgical incision, I might turn it up to 2%. Uh, so it might, might turn up to an entitle a concentration target of 2%. You're targeting your endpoint, not the inspiratory flow or in, inspiratory percent. Yeah, excellent. And, and the benefit of using entitled is you can then run really low flows because you know that the machine will compensate um, mm. to, to deliver that minimum, to achieve that minimum entitled. Whereas if you're not running entitled control and you're running, say, mm. one liters a minute or something, you could get the patient um, getting less anesthetic um, or even less oxygen if you're running you know, quite a low FiO2. Yeah, um, like you, you just have to keep a closer eye on it. The lower the flows, the more variance there will be, and the, yeah. you know, the, the greater the distance between your inspiratory and your entitled concentration. Yeah, excellent. So let's um, quickly also chat about if you have a, you know, you have a fasted patient who's getting elective procedure, mm. and you have a, you know, relatively kind of junior registrar doing the surgical case. So there's lots mm. of time going for draping and things. Mm. Do you, how, how do you then time when you turn up the, do, do you kind of have the patient on one Mac the whole time and then kind of keep giving aramine to keep the blood pressure up because there's no surgical stimulus or how do you kind of time that? And what's you know, your I, I don't think I'll give any specific way because you, you, there's, I think a big spread of practice. So if you were to keep the patient anywhere from 0.7% Mac to one Mac, that would be pretty standard. I think in most cases, you might have to give some aramine. There's no harm in that. You know, you just support the blood pressure, support the cardiac output. That's fine. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So now it's the end of the case. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the ports are out, the gallbladders out um, there and, and your boss has, you know, gone on to start out the emergency case and they say, Lehiru, are you happy to finish this case off? How do you, how do you go about waking the patient up? How do you time everything? Do you keep everything running until the patients, you know, the surgeons are completely done? What's, what's your approach? Yeah. So look, I think when you're starting out, probably the safest thing is make sure all the surgery is done, the drapes are off, the, you know, the um, dressings are on, and then you wake the patient up. Then that's, that's the, probably the most straightforward thing for me to tell you, but you'll notice 
through lots of time and experience that you slowly start weaning down the um, volatile, uh, you know, as the case has been so finishing. And so again, really check with your supervisor for this, but I'll keep the volatile concentration anywhere from 0.7 to one Mac when they're doing deep layers of suturing. So say the operation's done, they're suturing up the deep layers, the muscle, I keep it 0.7 to one Mac. And then when they're doing the skin layers, I get it down to 0.3 Mac. That's roughly, roughly what I do, because you know that end tidal is 0.3, but the brain is still higher than that. And the input is very minimal. So the surgical stimulus is very minimal. So the patient's not gonna be aware because there's no big pain response and I've given analgesia. Again, that's just a you know, personal practice. I'm sure there's lots of variance with this. When you have longer cases for stitching, like a big laparotomy requiring lots of stitching, you've got more time to wash out stuff. So you know, you, you can, there's a lot of ways you can do it. Maybe while they're suturing up the skin layers, you just keep the patient at 0.5 Mac. So there's a lot of variance in this. I'm just giving you a taste of it. Don't take my word for what you do because every case is so different. Yeah. Um, and then there's some cases that you don't have any stitching up at the end. Imagine the ENT case where the tonsils are suddenly done or you know they've done a fess and it's suddenly done, in which case you have to keep that volatile for a, up, to, up until the end. And you'll just have to wear the fact that you'll be waking the patient up uh, slower. Mm. And in terms of bringing the Mac down, so, you know, this is one of the things where you could, there's a lot of different ways to do it. You could, you know, turn off the volatile, keep the flows low. You could mm. keep the flows high and turn the um, concentration down. How do you conceptualize that as a junior? Yeah, look, I, I think the best way, it's so hard to explain it, but if you were to just try it out, that's pretty safe. For yeah. example, if you want to conserve anesthetic and not be too, you know, too polluting, you just keep the flows as they are, you know, one liter per minute low and just turn the SIVO off because there'll still be SIBO washing out. At the very end of the case, when you're actually you're trying to get all the gas out, then you can turn your liters per minute of oxygen up to wash everything out, but you're not delivering you know, volatile at that stage. Yeah, excellent. So I think when I first started doing this, I just, had a, I just was um, with a consultant who I'd worked with a lot, and I just said, I wanna practice doing this um, mm -hmm. while they were in the room. And it was just a nice, safe place to play around. And I think, you know, um, mm. you always have the fallback that your patient, the, the, your consultant is not going to let anything bad happen to the patient. Mm. I think that is much safer than trying to do it by yourself, you know, late at night when you're, when you're a junior reg. That's a, that's a great point. All of these have so much variance and there's so much room for error, especially we think of intubation as, a, as difficult, but extubation is very chaotic. And again, I've got a video on the extubation framework on the ABC of anesthesia playlist. Essentially, you need your safety steps, you need to make sure your ABCs are stable and then you've got to do reversal of the triad, have a really robust framework and, you know, insert this method into that framework. So don't learn anything in isolation. Yeah. Great. That's a, that's a great framework that um, I find really useful. Good. So I guess that's a common induction. So let's do probably the less so common inductions, yeah. at least in adults. So, so gas induction. So walk us through your approach for this. I guess what is a gas induction to start yeah. off with? So, you know, how we talked about propofol giving, you know, the injection of propofol straight to get a very quick induction into the surgical anesthesia depth. Well, you can do a gas induction as well. It just takes longer, especially it takes a longer time in adults. And most people aren't doing gas induction in, in adults. Essentially, it'll be hard to um, get the patient deep enough, fast enough. And kids are far more robust. So if you, you know, you, you would be very, uh, you know, you have to do 8% or the maximum sevoflurane dose in an adult can be quite dangerous. It can be so cardiac depressant, whereas kids have a far more robust cardiovascular system. So you can dial to 8%. So let's say adult gas induction is pretty complex. I'll just leave it at that. 
but kids gas inductions are often the case you you know there's a choice of putting a drip in and doing an IV induction but some kids you know they just don't want the drip you can do a gas induction and have the kid and have the child really you know enjoying it because you're playing a game with a mask and the balloon and you know this is where they breathe on the, the gas and you talk about um, you, you know various things can you smell the bananas and you kind of play along with the kids so they're having a nice experience and it's an enjoyable experience and they can see the balloon going up and down as they breathe so you've got this whole thing happening of playing with the child whilst giving a safe anesthetic and so literally what I do then is most people just dial up the sevoflurane slowly. Um, they usually have 100% oxygen on. They may use nitrous depending on what the situation is. That creates a faster inflow of the induction. Um, and then just slowly dial it up, you know, 2%, then 4%, keep getting the child slowly deeper, taking a, maybe a minute at each stage, finally dialing up to 8% in the, in the pediatric case. And that gets them deep enough. Now, you, obviously you've got to worry about cardiovascular problems. So as soon as this child is normally going to be running tachycardic, and you'll notice this, when the patient starts getting, uh, heart rate starts getting slow, so maybe 80, even 70, then you know that your CV concentration is too high. And that's when I usually take an indication to dial it back a bit. Um, there's some great pediatric anesthetists, and hopefully we'll um, get one on to talk about this, the more practical side of pediatrics, um, because they'll do it far more often than me. But you know, that's, that's probably a good basic plan. Excellent. And uh, yeah, sorry. Oh yeah. And generally ch children need a higher MAC requirement. So often in these cases, depending on the age, you may run anywhere from one MAC to even 1.5, 1.7 MAC. Hmm. So I think the, um, the rule of thumb I learned with MAC was uh, for every decade above 40, you, your target MAC becomes 1.0.1 less. And then for every decade less than 40, it goes up by 0.1. And I think that's a generally good rule of thumb. But again, Excellent. as you said, there's variability. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's hard calculating 6%. Why not just mm. do the, do the temp, roughly 10%, is that? Uh, yeah, it would be roughly 10%. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Excellent. Um, so look, that, that that's really good. So I think that there's a common um, gas induction scenario. So let, let's talk about another common scenario, which is when you're doing a regional technique. So let's go back to the cesarean section, which we spoke about last episode. Yeah. So you're doing a cesarean um, and, you know, they're, they're just kind of stitching up and the patient, the baby's out, you know, baby's safe, everything's fine. And then the patient's saying, oh, well, I can, I can kind of feel something again, or they can feel a bit of pain. Mm -hmm. So what are our options here? Yeah, that's great. So this is a very complicated situation, especially in pregnancy. And there's a lot of detail to it, but, so the first thing to know is that at any stage, you have to offer a general anesthetic to these, to these patients. It, you know, the fact that they're feeling pain, that's a really bad thing. You know, imagine being cut open and feeling all of that. That is so traumatic that, you know, you have to solve this very quickly. So again, high, high risk environment, call your supervisor, get help. And it can be very complicated because if they're, you know, we're on the skin layers, let's say, if they were deep within the uterus still, or the baby's not out, You'd be, you wouldn't even try these techniques. You want to go straight to offering a GA because you can't, you can't just get this patient through, generally speaking, with um, top-ups and all these kind of half measures. But let's say a cesarean where they're suturing up, maybe, maybe you know, just above the muscle layers or the skin or any other regional technique uh, without such serious issues. So, you know, an auxiliary nerve block or brachial plexus nerve block for an AV fistula repair. So it's, you know, superficial kind of operation. You can, you, can, you can use volatiles to your advantage. So what I'd do is usually try a whole range of multimodal things, including IV analgesics that are potent enough, things like fentanyl, even alfentanyl, maybe remifentanyl, 
again, using them very cautiously with all their problems, maybe ketamine, maybe giving more lignocaine into the area. But so that's, that's one aspect of all the things you could do, but you could also use things like nitrous. Sometimes a patient on, you know, just breathing nitrous can be, you know, can be, if, you know, sufficiently analgesic with everything else that you can get the patient through this feeling and, you know, you know, awareness of the, of the pain of the surgery very effectively for that short time frame that you need it. Now, interestingly, you wouldn't want to use sevoflurane necessarily uh, in the pregnant patient because they're an aspiration risk. If this patient uh, becomes is sufficiently anesthetized and they can't protect their airway, they, you know, they lose their airway reflexes and sevo or vol other volatiles are far more potent than nitrous or effective than nitrous, therefore they may get the patient there. That's a high risk thing and you, you don't want to be doing that lightly. So again, nitrous, much safer, much less effective. Uh, and very good analgesic doesn't get you to anesthesia that quickly. Hmm. Excellent. So I guess in a similar vein, let's, let's, what about mm -hmm. procedural sedation? So, you know, this can be in theater, can be an emergency, can be on the labor ward um, for various different things. Um, I guess we spoke a little bit about IV agents maybe last time in, in the procedural sedation context, but what about um, inhaled agents? Yeah, and, and so you'll find this often in the ED context. Maybe you're doing an ED rotation, or you're on the labor ward, and, and they have these pre-mixed uh, concentrations of nitrous. Uh, so you, often Entonox is like a 50-50 oxygen nitri nitri nitrous mixture, or they've got other devices that you can turn up the level of nitrous in, in labor, uh, you know, do, during labor, so the patient has some analgesia as well. Now, uh, so again, get, get in there, ask how to use it, use it safely. Just know that nitrous is very dangerous. Therefore, it's always combined with oxygen. And I think in anesthesia, the maximum nitrous concentration you, you can go up to is 70%. So you've always got 30% oxygen or air or you know, another, another solution. So make sure you've got enough oxygen there uh, and make sure that the patient's monitored appropriately. Now, the last thing with that is, so, you know, you deliver it, get your advice about how to deliver nitrous safely with oxygen, make sure they're being monitored. And then on the way out, so once you've stopped the nitrous, make sure you keep the oxygen on because there's this thing called diffusion hypoxemia, and that's really quite dangerous. So the nitrous is washing out very rapidly because it's faster diffusion in high concentration and high volumes than oxygen, displaces all the oxygen. So now, you know, your lungs are essentially just filled with nitrous without any oxygen and that can cause your single diffusion hypoxemia so make sure your patient has hudson mask six liters per minute oxygen or some kind of oxygen and they're monitored as you're finishing your sedation with nitrous i think that's probably the most essential things everything else is getting in there learning how to do it asking your supervisors how to use nitrous effectively as a sedative mm. um so i guess in the in the spirit of completion what, what are some contraindications for using nitrous Contraindication of nitrous. So, I mean, there's, there's a, th first of all, it can cause increased nausea and vomiting, and it can have some inhibitory effects on methionine synthetase. So, you know, in terms of cellular metabolism, and it can have issues with that. Um, and, and then obviously the greenhouse gas effects. Beyond that, I think the major issue, so those things are important, hmm. that beyond that, the fact that you can't uh, you need such high doses of nitrous. So let's say you get a patient who's really hypoxemic and needs a lot, uh, large FI of oxygen. Giving nitrous will mean that you can't fill up the rest of the space with oxygen. So I'd, I'd say that's the main issue with nitrous. Yeah, exactly. What, so, what do you reckon? Yeah, yeah so, so I, I guess um, the, the main, the other common thing that um, you, you need to consider is that 
nitrous moves into gas filled spaces um, very quickly. So if you have kind of a pneumothorax, a small bowel obstruction, um, or I think theoretically uh, for inner ear surgeries, you need to be mindful. Um, they can cause expansion of these um, gas-filled spaces. Um, so you're, you're at risk of kind of worsening pneumothoraces, worsening bowel obstructions and um, so inner ear perforation. That's, and that's a great point. So yeah, any kind of laparoscopic surgery as well, you're not using nitrous. So yeah, anything where there's a cavity being you know, opened up or enclosed, like you mentioned, don't use nitrous. Yeah. And what about fasting? Like, do you need to be fasted to use nitrous oxide? Look, I, I don't know what the latest guidelines in emergency is. I think at lower doses, a patient who's young, feeling well, I don't think they need to be fasted, mm. um, but I'd probably want to check that with the, your local hospital guidelines because any kind of, any of these medications, that, you know, they're very potent. Um, there's, pro there's probably some local guideline to follow about yeah. that. Yeah, I think um, pharmacodynamically, the, the effect on upper airway, upper airway reflexes is much less, which is why we can use them in pregnancy and things pretty, pretty comfortably. Um, but in terms of use in other areas, my understanding is in ED, they don't often fast for nitrous oxide, but it would be very dependent on local. Um, but, you know, I, local I, think, I think we're pretty safe to say that you don't need to be fasted. <laughs> yeah. uh, that said, again, patient very elderly, doesn't need and, and unwell as well. As well the MAC requirement is going to be less for them. They may be anesthetized with nitrous, so be very cautious the older and uh, the older patient is and the more unwell they are. Yeah, exactly. Good. Um, oh, and this is, this is the next one I think is, is, a, is a drug that I haven't used very often, but you've had a bit of experience with, which is methoxyfluorine or pentrane. Yeah. Can you good. tell us a bit about it? That's right. Methoxyfluorine was, you know, very problematic, so you couldn't get enough and it wasn't efficacious enough to give anesthesia and long periods of use cause renal failure. So they talk about having maximum usage of methoxyfluorine back in the day was under two MAC hours. So running one MAC of methoxyfluorine for two hours, that was roughly safe in most patients, didn't cause the renal issues. Uh, so it went out of favor until an Australian company actually started using it, packaging it um, with these things called pentrain. So pentrain is the trade name. It's this green whistle. And if you ever did sport and got a fracture, maybe the Ambos gave pentrain to you. It's just a really effective analgesic and very safe, didn't cause an anesthesia. So you didn't have to be fasted. Um, and it would be enough to get you to hospital uh, without having to give you a big dose of morphine. So, you know, I think it's important to be aware of it. Like, for example, you know, knowing that that's an option. Uh, it's often not used in hospitals, but there are times when you might be able to call pharmacy because you, you, may, you may see the use of it. And I, I know in one of the hospitals I worked at, they had a process of using pentrain for burns dressings. You know, the dressing changes are painful. They're just for a short time frame. You've got pretty sick patients often as well. Have them breathing on that whistle, pentrain, which is filled with methoxyfluorine and making sure you don't use too many of them. So there's a maximum dosage allowed. Look at the local guidelines for that. And you, you, know, you can get them through with a bit of opioids maybe and, and just the pentrain. Uh, and th there's definitely other situations that people have talked about their use, for example, in high BMI colonoscopy cases as well. There's been you know, articles about that. Um, and yeah, any kind of situation where you just need a short period of analgesia that's really effective. So potentially they'll, it'll be used more, but it's, it's just one of those interesting th things to know about. Oh, and I mean, also the fact that all of these agents can cause malignant hypothermia, except nitrous. So if, if there's ever a risk of malignant hypothermia, you cannot use any of these agents. Probably the one big thing to talk about in terms of pharma, you know, contraindications. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that actually reminds me, I think something um, is probably worth clarifying is, mm. you know, 
all these agents are inhaled anesthetics. And so they're all volatiles except nitrous oxide. It's not a volatile agent. It's an inorganic gas. And the relevance of this is that all volatile agents need to be in a really complicated um, vaporizer to, to use. Um, and, uh, you know, nitrous oxide doesn't, it's, it's stored again, it's quite complicated how it's stored, but it, it is not a volatile agent, bit of an academic point, but I think it's, if you're kind of started to learn this stuff, it's important to know the distinction. Yeah. If there's any, you know, real tech people out there who just love this stuff, like if you look at the, the design of these vaporizers, it's just, I mean, lots of things, medicine and stuff we're using is such in, insanely great technology, but even the basics of the older machines, um, and the fact that they have these, you know, whether the variable, variable or orifice, no, no, sorry, the bimetallic strips, mm. uh, which would bend depending on the temperature. It was just amazing calibrations that these older vaporizers had, but we won't go into that because that's for another time. <laughs> that's for the part one exam. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, excellent. I think that's really good. So we've covered everything um, that mm. the main, main agents, I guess something that's really up and coming, that's, you know, very very exciting and new in anesthesia is xenon. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about xenon? I've never used it. I mean, as, as you mentioned, it was one of the closest agents to an ideal gas. It's naturally mm. occurring in the environment and it's an analgesic as well, but you need, again, large concentration. I think the MAC is what, 60 to 70%, is that right? Uh, the MAC, 70, 71%, yeah. Yeah, good. So yeah. again, same problems. You can't use enough of it if you need high FIs of oxygen for a sick patient. So that's always a problem. And it's very, very expensive. I mean, xenon, you know, for them to naturally occurring in the, ga in the gas around us, it's very small concentration. So to be able to extract and uh, you know, manage this noble gas is very, very difficult. Um, yeah. I, I haven't seen it used at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't think it's commercially available. I might be incorrect in saying that, but yeah. So, so the, the process of fractionally distill distilling it from the air is incredibly expensive. And, um, but it is the closest thing we have to an ideal volatile agent. So it has, you know, much less, uh, so it's, it's considered to be quite cardiovascularly stable. Um, it has, you know, uh, less of the respiratory effects and it's got the fastest onset. So, you know, we were talking about blood gas partition coefficient values. It's, you know, 0.14, um, which is the most insoluble, so the fastest. And there's absolutely no metabolism at all. So, um, you know, it's a great drug and, you know, maybe in my lifetime towards the latter half of it, um, <laughs> we'll, we'll be using it. And I, and I, I think it's, it's pretty exciting that there's still kind of new things that we're figuring out to use in anesthesia. That's funny. I mean, we, we, I started in my part one, which is before yours and Hey, still not here. So yeah. I'm, wa I'm waiting. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's, a, that's pretty much it. Uh, Good time to wrap up. So again, thank you very much for watching and listening. Um, if you have any questions, please contact us at anesthesiapodcast at gmail.com and yeah, please share with anyone who might be interested and see you next time. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you. Bye.